Well, let's look now at John chapter 12. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere nearby in front of you, maybe under uh, the chairs in front of you, there's a little rack, and you'll see the little black books are the Bibles. The brownish ones are hymnals. Um, that's a fine one to open. It just won't help you for this sermon. Um, but I'd love for you to have a Bible open if you are able to. And that's always the case. I would always urge you to do that. But if you don't have either of those, the words will be on the screen as we look at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, I've titled this message, Developing a Deeper Love for Jesus. Let's stand, if you're able, in honor of the reading of God's word with an attentiveness to his voice in it. Hear the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we are needy people as we've just prayed and grateful people because you are so willing and able to meet those needs. And Lord, you know needs in our hearts even presently that we don't discern rightly. You know needs in our lives that haven't even met us yet. And Lord, we confess we come often to church thinking about what we want and you know what we need. And so we ask, God, as we open the scriptures, that you would speak to us what it is we need to hear. In light of what you know about every heart here and what uh, circumstances every life meets with. So, Lord, we ask as we open this with expectancy, we ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory and our good always. God, I ask now as always that you would move me out of the way, use my voice as your instrument to speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. 
At the end of John's gospel, we will read about, and you've probably read about before, we'll read about a scene after the resurrection of Christ when Jesus goes to Peter and has a little dialogue with him. And he asks Peter three times, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? You may remember that passage. Well, that's really the question for you and me this morning. Do you love Jesus? I don't mean, are you a Christian? I don't even mean, do you believe in Jesus? Although those who love him are Christians and would believe in him. But it's not simply that question, do you love him? And we talk about this all the time and maybe even just assume that it's true because we identify as Christians or because we believe in him. Do you love him? If so, how do you show that to him? And how do you love him in a way that your love is shown to others as well? Could other people look on and listen on to your life and to your confession and know that you don't just believe him, you don't just follow him, you don't just obey him, but you love him. Well, in John 12, Mary displayed Hall of Fame level love. I mean, in fact, it, it, it says in a couple of the other gospels that uh, this, because of this act, she would be known like down through the ages because of the way she loved Jesus on this particular occasion. Hall of Fame level love for Jesus. And the the scene in which that takes place finds Mary at the feet of Jesus. And I think that's, it's definitely significant just in this passage by itself. I, I, I think it's significant in context of what had preceded as well because it wasn't too much earlier. She had been at his feet before. You may not necessarily remember that, but I think a quick review of the background, what sort of led up to this event, I think that will help us appreciate even more what she does here. You'll recall that at the beginning of chapter 11, it opened up with this disclosure that Lazarus had become ill, very ill, ill to the point of uh, the threat of death. And so Mary and Martha send for Jesus. They send word to him that just says, the one The one you love is ill. Just assuming he'll come and heal Lazarus. Expecting he'll come and heal Lazarus. And he doesn't come. You remember? It said that he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So he stayed two days longer. Instead of coming in a hurry to their aid. Because he loved them. And knowing that Lazarus was going to die in the meantime. Just absolutely a sobering truth. And it it goes on to say that when Jesus came to Bethany, you know, he, he finally, you know, he waited two days longer, then made his departure. And when he came to Bethany, of course, Lazarus had already been dead for a few days at that point. But it says in verse 20 of chapter 11, 
that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But listen, but Mary remained seated in the house. I don't know, I don't know what her motivation was at all. We don't know any more than what, uh, what, what John has revealed. But it just makes me, in, in light of what follows at the beginning of uh, chapter 12, it makes me wonder even more if there was any hesitation on her part or just difficulty going out to see them in light of the grief she was feeling and in light of the fact that Jesus had been absent for those couple of days when they called for him in their time of great need. Martha went out to meet him. Mary remained seated in the house. And then Jesus came. He had a little exchange with Martha. It's where he said, I am the resurrection of life. You remember And then it says that Martha, down to verse 28, says Martha went to Mary in private and said, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. Mary, who's seated in the house, uh, Jesus is here, he's asking for you. And Mary goes out at that point, promptly. But down in verse 32, it says that when she went out to him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha had said the same thing. But you know, from, you can read from the verses that following, it's a, it's a, it's a tearful sort of moment. She's weeping. Uh, The people, her neighbors, friends, family, whoever it is gathered around them are weeping. Jesus wept. And then he says, where have you laid him? And they go and show him. And of course, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, this is this is what was coming all along. He's not surprised by that. He didn't decide, you know what? I was just going to let him die. But I think now and just everybody's sad about it. I'll raise him from the dead. No, it wasn't. This was, this was the plan. He was going to reveal something much greater about who he was, how glorious he was, how powerful he was. And of course, that's exactly the experience that Mary has and that Martha has and others around him as well. That, that, that is so far better than they could ever have asked or imagined that rather than healing him, he let him die and then he would raise him from the dead. And so, he goes away for a short time and then comes back to Bethany. And that's what we're reading about in chapter 12. And that when he comes, they have a dinner for him. And maybe you can imagine what, what, I, what the reason I think that background is really important for us as we, as we go into chapter 12. Because there is an even deeper love for Jesus that they have at that point. That, that having, been, uh, having seen him move in power and in glory in the midst of their grief. There's just a deeper love that has resulted here. 
a Hall of Fame love for Mary, as I said, and perhaps none of us will ever quite match Mary's level of love that she demonstrates here. As I said, I mean, Jesus even pointed out, it, her, her incredible demonstration of love will make the history books. It was just that extraordinary. And maybe we won't match it, but her example, I think, can inspire us and guide us in developing a deeper love for him than we currently have. And I'll suggest three ways that we can do that from her example, inspired by her example. And the first would be to give to him more freely. To give to him more freely. It says here um, about her encounter with him, it's really a lot of this is focused in uh, in verse 3, that it says, let me find what it says. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. So a few things about just how extravagant her gift was. And this is why I say, like, uh, the honest truth is, probably, perhaps most people won't match the depth of love that she demonstrates here. It was extraordinary and extravagant. Um, she gave freely. We can give more freely as well. But it was extravagant, number one, because it was pure nard. And that doesn't have a whole lot of meaning uh, to most of us. But nard was an, an oil extract from a flowering plant. So it's an essential oil uh, in, in the truest sense of the word. I mean, it's oils that have been pressed, extracted from uh, this flowering plant. And it was used in the ancient world for a few reasons, to, to anoint people of high honor. Um, it, it might be uh, used to anoint people for burial. It was used as a perfume. It was even used in the Roman world, in spiced wine. I don't particularly want to taste that. I don't know about you, but uh, somehow perfume and, and wine, I just can't, uh, I can't appreciate that. But, but it was used for a variety of uh, uses. Which is, this is really just to help us, again, sort of understand what it is that he's, minister, what she is ministering to Jesus, but also uh, to say it's, this is well attested in the first century. This isn't just something we read about in this encounter. In fact, in the first century, there was a Roman author named Pliny. Uh, it, it actually looks like Pliny, rhyming with tiny, P-L-I-N-Y, but it's, it's uh, pronounced Pliny, Pliny the Elder. He wrote a book on natural history. It was really kind of considered by many scholars to be like the first encyclopedia ever written. He just writ, recorded facts about a wide variety of things. And he, he had this natural history. And then he identified 12 different varieties of nard. And one of them was called pseudonard. You know, pseudo is like the fake stuff, right? The pseudonard, it wasn't, it wasn't the real stuff. But it was sometimes mixed together um, in order to sort of stretch out the real stuff, right? I mean, you, you can maybe sell some uh, diluted stuff as if it's pure, 
or maybe sell it for less or, or what have you. But it was pseudo nard. Was it was often what people would would uh, use or purchase would have would have been adulterated. Literally, he uses that word by pseudo nard. A common. Uh, application of this, of nard, in other words, in the first century. And so one of the things we're told here is that what Mary had was the real stuff. The real stuff, pure nard. And it, you know, it was stuff you would use on special occasions. You would use somewhat conservatively, perhaps. But it was pure. Uh, it was also voluminous. There was a lot of it. A pound of pure nard. Uh, a Roman pound was actually about a three quarters of our pound, 12 ounces or so. But still, if you know, uh, if you've ever shopped for like real genuine perfume, they, they sell it. And I mean, the finer it is, the smaller the bottle, right? I've seen it. I've never purchased that myself. I'm, I'm not thoroughly familiar with the perfume market, as you might imagine. Um, but, but even to this day, there are some really small bottles that are ridiculously expensive. And so, and so it was with, I mean, this stuff is expensive and she's got a bunch of it. And it's not as if she is, I mean, we, again, we don't know all, a whole lot about their background, but they don't, they're not presented as being wealthy, wealthy people or anything, just ordinary people. And yet she's got a whole lot of a very expensive nard, this pure extract, and she poured it out so freely and abundantly, it says the whole house was filled with the fragrance. And she just didn't put a little bit on the finger and go, you know, put a cross on his feet or something. She poured it out, a lot of it out, a lot of pure nard out. And it's those qualities, it's purity and it's volume that made it extremely expensive. Judah said here in John's gospel, it was worth 300 denarii. Actually, if you read Matthew and Mark, you'll see the same statement, by, at least Mark, uh, I believe it may be in Matthew as well. The same statement made though by all the disciples. Judas is the one sort of highlighted here in John's gospel. Really, all the disciples had a similar reaction. And you may recall that a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So 300 denarii is essentially a year's pay. If you, if you take out Sabbaths from 365 days in a year, if you take out Sabbaths, feast days, you know, you're talking about in the ballpark of 300 days of pay. So if that estimate is in the right ballpark, that's an extraordinary amount of money. And even if he's overestimated, and if he and the other disciples, even if they overestimated that a bit, you're still talking about in today's money, thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, think... $10,000 to $40,000, anywhere in that range. And of course, $10,000 is more than anybody's, uh, less than anybody's uh, annual pay. 
But I'm just saying, even if they considerably overestimated the worth of it, we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. Imagine, just imagine how outrageous it would seem if somebody said they were so moved that they wanted to come make a burnt offering to the Lord and they just threw thousands of dollars of cash on the fire. You go, wait, 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 wait. It's the thought that counts, brother. Let's get that. You can give that over here. Let's put that in an offering envelope. Which is, which is sort of the reaction some, uh, that some of these onlookers have. It's an extravagant gift for just about anybody, but, but especially for an ordinary person. But see, this is the point, that love gives. By definition, love gives. And Mary's willingness to give so much so freely was a demonstration of her deep love for Jesus. And can you appreciate a little bit better, perhaps, connecting chapter 11 with chapter 12, how she might be moved to such a deep place of love for him. And the question perhaps for you and me, is there anything that we've held on to that Jesus would have us let go of for his sake? This is really the the first demonstration of love on Mary's part is giving something away. It is the letting go of it. This nard that we don't know where she came by it, what she has saved it for, at least in her mind, what she's saving it for. Jesus says she was saving it for this purpose in preparation for his death, which is just uh, about a week away. But is there anything that you've held on to? Maybe Maybe for no particular reason other than fear or hesitancy to let go of it. Anything that you've held on to that Jesus would have you let go of for his sake. We can love him more deeply by giving to him more freely. Second, following Mary's example, we can serve him more humbly. This, this act on her part was not only a, 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 just, again, a sort of beyond beyond imagination uh, as far as generosity goes. But it's incredibly humble on her part because she not only gave that expensive ointment, she really gave up a sense of self-importance entirely here. She anointed Jesus' feet. And again, I love the connection and I, I, don't, I don't know to what extent this really... Uh, uh, deserves to be made. I mean, I don't know how, how tightly the dots connect in uh, the Apostle John's mind and intention in writing this, but the fact that her last visit with Jesus, she was at his feet weeping because he wasn't there and her brother died. And here she is now at his feet anointing them with oil. To attend to the feet of another person was a debasing, like degrading sort of task. I mean, the lowest 
of task, really fit for the lowest slaves in that first century culture. I mean, it was a dirty and demeaning task. I mean, somebody else's feet aren't really particularly attractive now, but in a day where people are walking around in sandals and dusty pads, I mean, that's a, that's a particularly unseemly place to be. And that's exactly how that was regarded. It was a lowly task to even attend to her feet, his feet at all, but she's anointing his feet. And then she wiped his feet with her hair. There's no sort of custom for this or whatever. There's no precedent that anybody knows of for this. Probably wiping the excess off his feet. I mean, she's obviously poured this so lavishly, abundantly, generously on him. And so as you might, you know, as oil runs down on anything else and you might wipe it or dab it with a towel, she's doing it with her hair. That's a humble act. I mean, can you picture yourself there? It's, that's hard. It's hard to give ourselves that much credit for being moved to that place of humility. But it's, again, it goes further than that. Because by itself, like I said, that's, that's self-debasing, if you will, uh, as a gesture. But it required her also to unbind her hair which a Jewish woman never did in public. In fact, it seems from even other references in the Old Testament, it seems that uh, for a woman who would uncover her hair and let her hair down, she would be viewed as a woman of loose morals. That that would only happen in uh, going to bed with a, a woman's husband. So this is a cultural, there's a cultural association in this way, in other words. And, and just in letting her hair down to do this, she risks being thought of by others looking on as an immoral person. But she considered Jesus worth risking a reputation. I mean, she puts herself all out there. It's not only the extravagance of the gift, it is the humility of attending to his feet at all, of wiping the oil with her hair, and even being willing to let it down, regardless of what anybody else might think. She didn't care. She was unrestrained in her devotion to Jesus. That's the other, that's sort of the next reflective question for you and me. Are you restrained at all in your devotion to Jesus? I actually know the answer to that question. It's yes. The question, the better question would be, in what ways are you restrained? Because there, there, are, um, there, there are probably uh, different variations of, of the same concern that most of us have that we are mindful of what other people think of us, what somebody else might say of us. You remember even David in the Old Testament dancing and praising God even to the scorn of his wife. And uh, there was something, in other words, that would, would have urged most people to restrain themselves in the way they worshiped God. And David just said, ah, 
Off with that. I just, God is that good. I don't care what somebody else thinks. You know, in what ways are you restrained in the way you talk about Jesus outside the, the four walls of the church? The way you talk about even just being identified with him. I mean, are you restrained at all in what you say in how you say it or to whom you say it? Another question would be, if you love Jesus, as the, the, that was the first question, do you love Jesus, how do other people know it? In the way, and just living your life in the normal course of life, and again, uh, the way you speak of him, to him, about him, how do other people know that you love him? Well, it is, it, it, it requires humility always to put those concerns beneath our love for him and our exaltation for him. And one of the ways that we can love Jesus more deeply is to serve him more humbly, just to live more humbly before him and before others, to put self-interest and and concern with self-respect, if you will, beneath our concern for his exaltation. Number three, we can love him more deeply by adoring him more affectionately. Adoring him more affectionately. There's maybe a better way of saying this, but but the the point I want to make is that this gift of this expensive nard, number one, she had to let go of it herself. There's a part of uh, the act of love requires us to give something, which means we've got to let go of it. But then the other side of it is, how is that love expressed and to whom? If we say, I, I, I need to love by giving this, to whom and in what way? She shows him this adoration and affection that is just off the charts. It took a loving heart for her to give up that costly perfume, but a deep love for him to pour all of it out on his feet. And if there's some retained there, if there's a mention there by Jesus of saving, saving this for her burial, there's some that say maybe she... Uh, poured out most of it, and the rest would be uh, applied that last week. That's, that's sort of a technicality here. The point is, she didn't just dab this on. She poured it. She didn't hold back because there was some other use for it. What, the, what this demonstrates on her part is he is worthy of it. Whatever it was being saved for, whatever other person of honor might have come along, and have been worthy of anointing with that. What, what she decided was, not only does she not hold, need to hold on to it, but that he's worthy of all of it. And so I say again, you imagine somebody who comes along with stacks of $100 bills and just throws them on a fire as a burnt offering to the Lord. You'd go, well, wait, wait. Now, that, that, 
that analogy doesn't hold entirely, but the, but the point is we can, we can maybe identify more with Judas if we're honest to say, hey, look, that could be used for a lot of good purposes. Why would Jesus waste it all on an occasion like this? I mean, sure, he's worthy of honor, but again, just put, dab some on your finger and put the sign of the cross on his feet. She considered him to be worthy of all of the adoration and affection represented by pouring all of that out. It made me think of the song uh, that we've, we've sung recently, but we sing from time to time, you're worthy of it all. You remember that little chorus? You're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. I think that's actually a really fitting summary of what she's just done. You're worthy of it all. From you are all things. Like there's nothing that you and I have or that Mary had that we have any right to lay claim to. All of it's from him. That's true even in the life of an unbeliever, but certainly a believer whose life has been redeemed by him and claimed as his very own. There is nothing we have that we have rights to. It is all his. It's all from him. From him are all things, and to him are all things. You deserve the glory. That's exactly what she just demonstrated. She, there, there is nobody any more worthy of this extravagant gift, so she pours it all upon him. You're everything to me. It's as if she's saying that. You're, you're everything to me. You're worth everything I have, everything I am. You deserve it. Because again, on any other level, Judas has a fair point. As I said, he, uh, uh, John kind of singles out Judas to point out his hypocrisy that he's really got his fingers in the till and he's been skimming off the top or whatever. They point out his hypocrisy here. And, and, and the contrast between Mary's selflessness and Judas's selfishness. I mean, that's part of what John is helping us to do is to see the contrast. Even with the, the, the Jewish leaders who are wanting to kill him and are now wanting to kill Lazarus as we read about at the conclusion of this passage. So Mary is asking herself, how can I give? Judas is asking, what can I get? Those are really uh, sort of the ends, extreme ends of, two, uh, uh, of a continuum. And we all fall somewhere along there. And it might be, again, another good question for us to reflect on is where do I really fall on that continuum? We... We certainly want to be over there right next to Mary. We want to think of ourselves that way. There may be ways in which our hearts, while not betraying Jesus as such, uh, may approach many things, even in the life of the church, with a, with a view toward what can I get from it. Coming to worship even, with a sense of what do I want rather than asking from God's perspective, what do I need 
What does he want to give me? How can I give rather than what can I get? Again, we could apply that in all kinds of ways. But having said that, I mean, Judas does make a fair point uh, on any other level. The ointment could have been sold for a lot of money. Could have been used to do a lot of good. If she just applied it more modestly, it seems kind of wasteful to just pour it out like that. But she has grasped, she has grasped the worthiness of Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection of the life. He is something more than they ever imagined. And he's worthy of it all. It's an, it's an interesting little, perhaps, footnote, and again, uh, m- maybe a reflective question or consideration. But there are many, many times now the same rationale is applied. I mean, there are, there are ways in which people are always looking on uh, onto the church and um, the, 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 the way the church uh, spends its money and so forth and, and sort of scoffing and saying, oh, you know, that money could be used, that money could have been used to help the poor or whatever. And, and again, on a certain level, that's a fair observation. On another level, the person asking that might want to consider, do you still have a house? Because you could have sold that and given it to the poor. I mean, you could have sold your car, you could have sold everything you had. But there's something to consider uh, about what sort of extravagant worship is worthy of Jesus? Because whatever we could offer, he's worth more. Whatever we could, whatever we would be willing to offer, whatever we are capable of offering, he's worth more than it. And so as I said, we might not match Mary's Hall of Fame level of love, But we can certainly be moved by her example to give more freely. What is it that we're holding on to and that's holding on to us that we need to be willing to say, Lord, I need to give this because I need it to let go of my heart. Uh, How is it that we need to really serve him and represent him humbly that we'd be willing to put ourselves out there, as it were, facing criticism, ridicule, being misunderstood, and so forth, because he's worthy of that. He's worthy of the risk of our reputation. Matter of fact, if we have too much of a sense of our (laughs) reputation, we need to get rid of that too, right? And I understand all about uh, what it's like to have a case of, of self, right? <laughs> a high sense of self. But the higher we have a sense of self, the more we need to get rid of it because it stands in the way of our love for him. And we need to adore him more affectionately. The reality is probably this whole theme of loving him more deeply probably is easier for women to resonate with and it is men, perhaps, in a certain way of being affectionate because uh, women just seem, generally speaking, to be more inclined that way than men do. And yet we're not 
uh, at all left off the hook. John himself became another real model uh, for that as he was even referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He refers to himself that way, known for his love for Jesus. Well, let's pray. Lord, again, we just praise you for your greatness and glory and majesty, Lord, that you are worthy of it all. From you are all things, to you are all things. You deserve all the glory. And so we give it to you, Lord. And God, we pray that you would help us to see what you see in our own hearts, that you might need to help move out of the way for us, that we might give to you more freely and let go of things that have hold of our heart that would be an expression of our love. Lord, that we might humble ourselves in our worship of you, in our service of you, in our testifying of you. In our courage to step out and speak to those neighbors, to even ask to pray for them. To take little steps that would voice our identification with Jesus and then our love for him. Lord, would you help us deal with our sense of self and self-consideration and self-exaltation that we might clothe ourselves in humility. And Lord, show us Show us, Lord, a more personal glimpse of your goodness that we might adore you, adore you, Lord, more affectionately. You know our hearts, and God, would you move us closer to those places as you know we have need. And we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.